Assume nothing. Question everything and start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast, hosted by Seth Andrews. How is the internet world changing us, whether it's our sleep patterns, our memories, social media in relation to our self-esteem, so many questions. I've been really enjoying a series on Wondrium by Dr. Indre Viscontis. I've had her on the show before. The series is called How Digital Technology Shapes Us. I remember there was a fascinating section about books and how our brains receive books differently depending on whether they're digital or paper books. In fact, this change in how we participate is altering how many authors write their books. Fascinating stuff. Just another example of Wondrium's thousands of hours of audio and video courses, documentaries, tutorials. Watch or listen totally ad-free on any device. And this is kind of meta, isn't it? Watching Wondrium to explore streaming media's impact on our lives. Aha. Uh-huh. And you can find your next aha moment by signing up for Wondrium. You're going to love it. Right now, Wondrium is offering my listeners 50% off your first three months. That's half off when you sign up for your first quarterly plan. A fantastic deal. Sign up today with my special URL to get this offer. Go to wondrium.com slash Seth. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Seth. Wondrium dot com slash Seth. Man, today's a hot one. This subject is so polarizing. It's, it's such a sensitive thing that I debated as to whether or not we should even try it. Because I know just the title alone has already got somebody, probably several people, mashing out their emails to me or you know, typing away in the comments section. They're rendering their opinion before they've even listened to a syllable of what I'm about to do or say or the interview that I'm going to have later in the broadcast with a psychologist, Dr. Valerie Tirico, about relationships, toxicity, when do we need to cut people off, shut them down, lock them away, and when does that become problematic, maladaptive, overreaction, and even harmful to us as well as other people? I mean, you see the minefield that we're about to walk through. How often have we been genuinely hurt down to our marrow, and when in our lives have we perhaps harmed someone else? Have we been quote-unquote toxic? How do you define toxic? What do we do about it in a world that seems increasingly divided? 
I suspect that you are part of this family, part of this audience, part of this community, because you welcome these types of nuanced, thoughtful, empathetic, compassionate, reasonable conversations. That's my goal. And I stumbled across an article that got me to thinking about toxic people. You know, there's that great meme that uh, is out there. Well, actually, there's a series of them that talk about, you know, if you meet somebody who doesn't do this, you don't need that kind of negativity in your life. And it's played as a joke, right? If you meet somebody who hates on Nickelback, you don't need that kind of negativity in your life. If you run into somebody who loves black licorice, you don't need that kind of negativity in your life. They play it for, uh, for laughs. It's a joke, and I think they're hysterical. But there are also a lot of memes and posts about get rid of toxic people. If someone is being toxic and poisoning your life, you don't owe them the time of day. Lock them out, get rid of them, write them off, spend no time or attention on them. And to a degree, I buy that. I line up with that. I mean, you're listening to somebody who has drawn a hard line for people who have been legitimately toxic. But I also wonder, is that approach always necessary, appropriate, and helpful? And what brought this whole thing again to the forefront of my mind, I read this article posted in The Atlantic, 28th of August of this year. The title of it was called, That's It, You're Dead to Me. And I wondered what to do with this article, how to approach it in light of this podcast, and all I can think to do is just read it. This piece is written by a young staff writer at The Atlantic. Her name is Caitlin Tiffany. She covers technology and the culture. The article is called, That's It, You're Dead to Me. And it says this. Last spring, my boyfriend sublet a spare room in his apartment to an aspiring model. The roommate was young and made us feel old but he was always game for a bottle of wine in the living room, and he seemed to like us, even though he sometimes suggested that we were boring or not that hot. One night, he and my boyfriend started bickering about which Lord album is better, the first one or the second one. This kind of argument can be entertaining if the participants are making funny or interesting points, but they weren't and they wouldn't drop it. The roommate was getting louder and louder. My boyfriend was repeating himself. It was Friday. I was tired. I snapped and said loudly, This conversation is dumb, and I don't want to keep having it. I knew it was rude, but I thought it was expedient. Eldest sibling rude. So I was sort of shocked. When the roommate got up without a word, went into his room, slammed the door, and never spoke to me again. Though he lived in the apartment for several more months, I saw him only one other time on the way to the bathroom. We didn't make eye contact. Another time, I was on a Zoom call in the living room and heard, from behind his closed bedroom door, the Avril Lavigne song, Girlfriend the chorus of which is a peppy, hey, hey, you, you, I don't like your girlfriend, playing at a pointed volume. 
Eventually, my boyfriend texted him to see if he would talk about the situation. He replied that there wasn't much to say except one thing. Your girlfriend is toxic, he warned, followed by an emoji of a monkey covering its face. This accusation was upsetting because I crave approval at all times from everyone around me. But it was also surprising because toxic is an internet word. I'd seen all kinds of advice on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Reddit about how to deal with toxic friends, generally by never speaking to them again. But I had rarely heard it used offline, and then only semi-ironically, or in regard to people who were objectively terrible, I'd never had to consider whether it was a word that could be applied to me. The internet is wallpapered with advice, much of it delivered in a cut-and-dried, cut-em-loose tone. Frankly worded listicles abound. For instance, seven tips on eliminating toxic people from your life, or seven ways to cut a toxic friend out of your life. On Instagram and Pinterest, the mantras are ruthless. There is no better self-care than cutting off people who are toxic for you. If I cut you off, chances are you handed me the scissors. The signature, smugness, and sass of Twitter are particularly well-suited to dispensing these tidbits of advice. I don't know who needs to hear this. A tweet will begin, suggesting that almost anyone might need to hear it. But if someone hurts your feelings, you are allowed to get rid of them. There's even a WebMD page about how to identify a toxic person, defined aggressively unhelpfully as, quote, anyone whose behavior adds negativity and upset to your life. Well, by that measure, I find this stuff tough to read because... Like most people I know, I've surely hurt everybody I love at least once. Plus the roommate, I talked down to him, an obvious red flag, and he did what he was supposed to do according to the prevailing online wisdom. He acted quickly to protect himself. A person has no obligation to forgive anyone for anything. He may have been reassured by some tinny internet voice. Or as one inspirational quotes account tweeted over the summer, cut them off silently. They know exactly what they did. I can't say it was a huge loss. Our relationship was based almost entirely on proximity. But the advice I'm sifting through isn't just about sloughing off casual acquaintances. It's meant to apply to close friends, siblings, partners, parents... The message, implied if not always stated outright, is that other people are simply not my problem. These are some signs that you should cut somebody off. Sahar Dahi, a 22-year-old TikTok creator, announced last year to her millions of followers she has the air of a big sister, but a fun one, not a scold. The signs include, they can't tell the truth, they can't keep your secrets, and they cross your boundaries even though your boundaries are non-negotiable. These are definitely 
red flags, she told me. Dahi posts a lot of videos tagged hashtag toxic. When I interviewed her, I asked her if she practices what she preaches, and she told me that she's actually very big on practicing what she preaches. She's cut a wild number of toxic people out of her life. How many exactly? She paused. Like, just doing a quick count? Oh my God, I'd say like 10 in the past year. I should stop here to note that I'm not looking to instigate some kind of moral panic. Maybe hashtag toxic posts are popular because relationship drama is good entertainment, especially on TikTok, an app for teenagers whose literal role in society is to explore the full spectrum of irrational behavior. Maybe this advice is just what's in style right now. But at a time when our most intimate relationships really do seem to be becoming more brittle, it's hard to laugh off the possibility that some people are taking all of this to heart. Nobody tracks breakups between unmarried romantic partners, let alone friends or subletters, but we do know that all kinds of relationships seem to be snapping. Last year in the Atlantic, Joshua Coleman a psychologist focused on family estrangement described advising an influx of parents whose adult children had cut them out of their lives. Carl Pillemer, a professor at Cornell University, published a book on the topic in 2020 in which he estimated that about 67 million Americans were estranged from a family member. Some blame self-absorbed young people. In a New York Times column last year, David Brooks employed the work of Pillimer and other experts to argue that the estrangement epidemic might be driven by, quote, a generational shift in what constitutes abuse. Difficult or distant parents redefined as dangerous. He wondered whether today's young people view the family as a launch pad for personal fulfillment rather than the site of lifelong obligation. Brooks then painted a lonely picture of the psychological unraveling of America, working in high rates of depression and suicide, as well as the sizable percentages of Americans who feel that they do not have even one close friend and that nobody truly knows them. Two decades ago, Robert D. Putnam lamented the breakdown of social ties in bowling alone. Americans pressed for time and money were abandoning their bridge clubs, bowling leagues, and broader community obligations. Putnam diagnosed a generational posture toward society, but what's going on now is different a generational mutation in the philosophy of interpersonal relationships. It's more intimate and maybe more distressing. Why is this happening? Maybe young people have been inspired by the impermanence and infinite choice baked into online dating and social media. Maybe our brains have been pickled in wellness culture and self-care rhetoric which stress the need to privilege our own well-being above all else. 
Or maybe we're just good American capitalists encouraged by the cult of individualism to think of ourselves as compelling brands, the main characters of cinematic star vehicles, the centers of the universe. The line between internet advice and bona fide mental health guidance can get a little blurry. A few TikTok personalities have branched out into something that looks more like therapy, charging for one-on-one consultations. And I spoke with professionals who told me that this school of online advice has made its way into their own consultation rooms. Lena Pearl A clinical psychologist in New York said her patients sometimes talk about toxic friends and the Internet's advice for dealing with them. She gets the appeal. People love rules, she told me. They want to know what their responsibilities are. When do I get to say, that's it, I cut you out? Jack Worthy, a psychotherapist in New York, doesn't care for the word toxic. Quote, As far as I know, it's not an actual psychological construct that has validity and reliability. But lately, he told me it's been coming up again and again in his practice. Many patients want to explore ideas or frameworks that they learned online. Worthy noted that self-help is much older than social media, but that reading an entire Brene Brown book takes far more commitment than passively consuming what's presented to you in an algorithmic feed. I think previously it might not have been so easy to find content to validate what you already feel, he said. The advice is not just easier to find, it's easier to follow, too. Earlier iterations of self-help often stressed the hard work of building and maintaining relationships, of opening up and connecting with others. That's more arduous than simply removing from your social network anyone who causes you discomfort. Social media, by its nature, can make people appear more extreme than they are. Consider a recent incident involving Lindy Ford, a 21-year-old influencer from Spokane, Washington, who posts videos on Twitch of herself playing fantasy games like The Elder Scrolls V. Though her modest audience follows her for gaming content, she's also been candid about her anxiety and panic disorders, as well as her relationships. Sometimes on Twitter, she'll offer bits of advice. Last year, she posted this. Here is your reminder that unless someone explicitly told you with their words they are upset with you, there is no need for you to worry yourself sick. You have no mental or emotional obligation to people who do not communicate with you, no matter how much you love them. Pretty intense. The tweet was shared more than 50,000 times, in many cases approvingly. But others saw Ford's message as wrong or even dangerous, describing it as an insane thing to say and a great entry in the short but rich history of sociopathic advice on social media. When I spoke with Ford soon after, I was curious about whether she was surprised by that backlash. That is just the way it is online, she told me. 
Her followers knew she was alluding to her own tendencies to overthink things and to be too self-critical. But she understood why other people thought it was quote-unquote sociopathic. They were reading it as if I were saying, if you hurt someone, then you have no obligation to fix it because they didn't tell you that you hurt them. That wasn't what she meant. It's only what she wrote. The beauty of a tweet is its simplicity. You can hear a gavel bang at the end of each sentence. But that just doesn't correspond to the messiness of life. What mistakes can we make and still ask for forgiveness? What do we owe one another? What do we owe ourselves? You can discuss these questions forever. This is why I love reality TV, especially the Real Housewives universe, which, stripped of the glitz, is about nothing other than how and when to give an apology and under what terms to accept one. In her 1987 memoir, Fierce Attachments, Vivian Gornick describes her relationship with her unhappy and demanding mother. The story doesn't come to a dramatic end in which Gornick stops talking to her mother forever. Instead, Gornick painfully, slowly gains a little freedom. Quote, We are no longer nose-to-nose, she and I. A degree of distance has been permanently achieved. This little bit of space provides me with the intermittent but useful excitement that comes of believing I begin and end with myself. Beginning and ending with yourself is not the same as suggesting that yourself is your only obligation, which is plainly nonsense. Even the influencers with the most followers putting out the toughest advice must know that's no way to live. Because if the people in our lives aren't our responsibility, then what is? Catherine Hodes, a social worker in Massachusetts, doesn't spend a lot of time on the internet, but she has devoted her career to thinking about how people treat one another. In 2013, when she was the director of the Safe Homes Project, a domestic violence program, she started a workshop called Is It Conflict or Abuse? An abusive dynamic, she argues, requires one person to have power over the other, whereas conflict involves two people struggling for power. The distinction can be confusing, and in some cases, both people feel like they're being abused because they're not getting their needs met or they're not getting their way. The relationship advice I've been describing doesn't necessarily encourage anyone to think of themselves as a victim of abuse, but it does imply that one person is always in the right while the other is in the wrong so much so that the person in the right should summarily dismiss the person in the wrong. To demonstrate the error of this thinking, Hodes told me a story. She once attended a conference where a group of people shared experiences of abuse. One young man was asked to tell his story of abusing someone else. He said that he'd been jealous when his girlfriend spoke to other guys, that he cursed at her and felt the need to exert control over her. He had thought this was a normal part of being in a couple. 
but he had since been corrected. He spoke very softly, and he looked down, and he seemed shy and maybe ashamed, Hodes recalled. As he spoke, she was thinking, wait a minute, why is this being called abuse? It sounds like a 16- or 17-year-old kid with no experience with relationships who doesn't know anything about intimacy. I saw his confusion and his pain and his humanity, and I had no desire to label him as being bad. In 2016, the writer Sarah Shulman published a book called Conflict is Not Abuse, elaborating on Hodes' work. She argues that overstatement of harm can itself cause more harm. The person seen as good will be supported, and the person seen as bad will be shunned. On social media, Hodes said these binaries can become even more entrenched because people are encouraged to take sides. This was the case with Ford's tweet and thousands of other ephemeral dramas. One of the easiest explanations for the, quote, toxic trend is clearly false. Young people aren't misanthropes. In the past few years, millennials and Gen Zers have helped rejuvenate the concept of mutual aid, participated in some of the country's largest ever demonstrations in favor of racial justice, and expressed a renewed interest in organizing labor. Many of us are thinking hard about our interconnectedness and sometimes tying ourselves in knots trying to do the right thing. But too often this does not square with the way we discuss our personal lives. I never feel quite so worried that I could die alone and unloved as I do when scrolling through the relationship sphere hit by so many emphatic declarations of who should be dead to me and why I should be dead to others. And yet, I don't feel hopeless. I have no obligation, I'm told, but we all feel obligation, or we wouldn't be looking so desperately for some relief from that sensation. The very existence of the relationship advice ecosystem implies an attitude of responsibility and generosity toward our fellow travelers. That attitude will remain, I think, long after the chilly tone of today's advice givers goes out of style. Now, I think we need to get a mental health professional's perspective on this. I like Dr. Valerie Tirico because she has an even voice and I think a measured and nuanced approach. She's been on the broadcast several times, and when you hear what she has to say, I would wager that you will understand why. She published a recent article with a mouthful of a title, Shun, Exclude, Expel, Ostracize, Exile, The Power of Silence and Separation, and Staying Engaged. That link is in the description box. Let's talk psychology about toxicity, and we'll do it next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling 
wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Next. I'm so thankful for your support on Patreon. I think COVID has been hard on everybody. It's kind of like the stock market. You know, everything's down. People have been financially kind of struggling often. I think they're dealing as best they can. And things are starting to turn around a little bit. But I will admit, you know, we saw a dip in patrons. And uh, your patronage helps me to do what I do. It's a big part of this broadcast. It, it keeps us kicking. So if you enjoy what you hear, it's worth a couple of bucks a month or whatever. I would so welcome your patronage. You get the show two days early and totally commercial free. Patreon.com slash Seth Andrews. Up next, Dr. Valerie Tarico, a psychologist, author of the book Trusting Doubt. She's written hundreds of articles, many of which deal with social interactions, especially in the era of the Internet and developing resilience against all the stuff that's out there. I thought she'd be a great addition to this conversation about toxic people. Dr. Tarico, thanks for coming. Absolutely. It's an honor to be talking with you. I'm already preparing myself because people, especially who have dealt with legitimate toxicity, I'm worried that they feel like we're talking about them, trying to marginalize perhaps the abuse or toxicity they've legitimately encountered. When you and I try to have a nuanced discussion about when reaction goes to overreaction, do you feel that? Well, part of the problem with what's going on online is that there isn't a nuanced conversation. If somebody comes into a psychotherapy office and says that there's a relationship that is toxic for them or that they are struggling with that is causing them problems, heartache, symptoms, whatever it is, you don't start with the assumption that they should cut that person out of their life. You also don't start with the assumption that they shouldn't, right? There's a whole lot in between those two starting assumptions. Uh, that has to do with exploring what changes the other person is capable of making, what changes the client is capable of making, what the costs and consequences are of different courses of action. And all of that gets lost in this sea of internet talk about toxic people, quote unquote, and about getting rid of them. I was thinking of a story in my own life. I'll front it by saying that in no way do I consider myself a victim in this story. 
But it relates, and it's something that I've carried with me for years and years. I've thought about it often, and it has to do with being labeled toxic. I knew a guy. He was an activist in the movement. We were acquaintances, probably the best word. But, you know, he's pretty extreme, especially when it came to neo-Nazis. And he felt like, you know, you never get on stage, you never debate them. Sucker punch them in the streets, make them afraid to show their faces, right? The debate is over, and the only thing we can do is crush them literally under boot. And so he was a big fan of just really extreme tactics. And I'm not one of those guys who thinks we defeat racism by sucker punching racists. I just think we had a disagreement on tactics. And in the eyes and the minds of many people, If you don't go to the extreme, then you're soft. They say, well, you know, now Seth Andrews wants to sing Kumbaya and hold hands with Nazis, which is a kind of binary thinking, right? We're back to reductive thinking. If you don't do this extreme thing, then you aren't doing anything or you're weak or perhaps you're even a sympathizer and an enabler of white supremacy. And this was this guy's position. He felt like I was part of the problem. So he sent me an email out of the blue and it said, I don't like who you are. I want nothing to do with you. And I just, you know, I was kind of stunned and I hit reply and I said, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, wait a minute. I, I think we just disagree on tactics. We're on the same side. Let's talk. Can we have a phone conversation? And it's been eight years Eight years, I haven't heard a syllable, not a word, not a note, nothing. Uh, I think except the occasional grenade thrown from his own pages, you know, and I think about that. How quickly was a guy like me called toxic? I always thought I was kind of a kind of a teddy bear. Then you got what some people call a social death sentence. You know, there's this guilt by association that comes from a number of things. One is that there seems to be this increase in our public discourse of all or nothing thinking. You're either with us or against us. There's nothing in between. And that in turn, I think, flows from the fact that we have increasingly taken a bunch of our disagreements about how to get to a better future and translated them into questions of whether the other person cares about getting to a better future. So rather than it being a set of kind of competing hypotheses that we discuss, it then becomes moralized in a way that my position is the only righteous position and the other person's position comes from a place of, in religious terms, sin or evil, a lack of righteousness. You think it's a superiority thing as well? I am the noble hero of my story and I need a villain? All of us I think, are trying to find ways to feel good about ourselves. And most of us care deeply about being good people, right? So as we've seen the waning of religion, which offered a path to feeling morally superior through the community that supported that, with a set of rituals that supported that, with a set of prescriptive behaviors, etc., I think that has opened up a space in which people are substituting other ways of competing for worthiness, competing for a sense of I am a good person. And I wish 
I didn't have to keep using that word competing because I think it's a valid quest. It's a very fundamental, deep human quest. But unfortunately, it does also seem to have a competitive element. I myself am someone who has cut off or set and enforced boundaries with people I consider to be toxic, right? I came out of a fundamental religious faith and I had people in my circle who were injecting real negativity. You know, you are an embarrassment. You give us shame. You're going to hell. You're broken. You're damaged goods, right? And I got fed up and I said, here's the line. If you cross it, I'll cut you off. I considered that toxicity and I decided I don't need this kind of negativity in my life. So I'm not trying to be a hypocrite, right? I mean, there are times you would agree when you got to say enough is enough and draw the hard line, take the stand. Absolutely. And there are times when the only thing you can do is physically remove yourself from another person who is harmful. I think the challenge comes is that there's a spectrum that ranges from healthy self-care to what you might call silent bullying and a whole range in between. You know, We are social animals, and cutting someone off from human contact, even with one person, is a very intense and powerful experience for the person that, sometimes for the person that does the cutting off, but almost always for the person who gets cut off. The shunning, ostracizing, you know, expelling people, etc., those are mechanisms that go way back both in terms of political structures, and they go way back in terms of religions as a way of eliciting conformity and enforcing kind of hierarchy. But they are also can, as as you said, there's sometimes that the only way we can protect ourselves and our sense of well-being is to remove ourselves from contact with the person who is doing harm. Would you accept the word toxic in that context? <sighs> toxic doesn't have any specific psychological definition. It's not testable it's not it's not it's squishy and it's kind of a catch-all that says this causes distress or this causes a lack of well-being it causes harm in some way where i balk is if you look online there's a whole bunch of advice about toxic people and that seems super simplistic to me in that people aren't one thing and all of us do harm sometimes to people including people we love and care about deeply including when we don't want to be doing harm So I would find it much better to be having a conversation about toxic dynamics, toxic behaviors, even toxic traits. But, you know, kind of talking about toxic people, it just seems too simple. I'm waiting for the meme on this one. Dr. Valerie Tarico says toxic people don't exist. You know, and and you and I are like, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on just a second. So if I'm hearing you. So let me say. Go ahead. Let me say. (laughs) toxic people do exist. There are people, as far as I can tell, who are fundamentally evil or just fundamentally so damaged that they go through the world doing more harm than good and that other people have to be kind of physically protected from them, whether that is removing yourself as an individual or kind of distancing themselves from communication channels. Now I'm waiting into really complicated space, but well, I think that's real. But the, but the, most of the time we are talking about people who are much more complex than that in terms of their effect on us and, on, and their effect on the world around them. I was talking to a couple of friends of mine, Tom and Cecil, and we were lamenting that we've come to a point, especially online, when we we should be giving a lot of people a little more grace. Mm-hmm. 
again, coming back to my role as a therapist, when somebody comes into therapy and is ex- kind of trying to figure out what to do with a harmful relationship, part of what you're asking yourself, most relationships around us, we get some goodies from them as well as bad stuff. And so part of the exploration, if you're talking about, for example, a parent who has done some harm is, for starters, is there a way to kind of build um, barricades, strengths, kind of skills, whatever you might want to call it inside yourself so that you can be in their physical presence so that you can interact with them without their crap getting inside you. And the second question is kind of, are there ways to have conversations with them that would get them to acknowledge, to back off, to see that they're doing harm and to kind of change their ways. And it's only when those two things fail that then really the only other option is some separation. Again, I'm going to touch on a very sensitive nerve. Please, if you're listening, I'm approaching this in good faith with a desire to achieve understanding. Everybody relax, okay? But uh, I'm interested in how much responsibility we have as to our own reactions and our own hurts. We all have our buttons, and we can all be wounded, legitimately wounded, But how much control do we give other people over those buttons? How much do we allow them to determine who we are, how we feel? And when does disconnecting, shutting down, vilifying in a binary way, when does that become maladaptive, right? We're we're not actually moving forward. We're just shutting out the unpleasant noise. Yeah, it's a recognition of kind of a static state, if you will, right? It's saying... You know, a lot of times when someone else has wounded or harmed us, even if they are the ones who did that, even if we were vulnerable children and really lack the power to kind of caretake ourselves or protect ourselves, we're still the only one who ultimately can fix it for us. So having to remove ourselves says that we can't, we're either choosing not to, we're not ready for whatever it is, that kind of of process. Now, again, I'm going to say there are some people who are so harmful and so either damaged themselves or so malevolent themselves that the only way to deal with them is to distance ourselves from them. But that's not the majority of situations that people are talking about online when they're talking about toxic people. It's not the situation that you described for yourself, for example. Yeah, it's sticky, isn't it? It's, it's messy. It's complicated. When is it adaptive? When does it help in my own process to heal in a healthy way to lock out the bad or the agents of negativity or toxicity? And in what circumstances might it be maladaptive, not healthy, not helping me deal with my own issues, heal my own wounds, develop the skin that I need to live in this crazy, messy, conflicted world? and not find myself constantly negatively affected and reacting to the stimuli around me. I mean, it's, it's complicated. I, I don't know. Well, so again, I would say sometimes, it, even when someone else is clearly responsible for the harm that has come to us, and I want to be really careful about kind of not blaming victims, we are still often the only one who has the power to change that in terms of kind of moving forward, building resilience, healing ourselves, dealing with whatever trauma and grief we have internalized because of their behavior. And so it really does come back to 
you can get mired and stuck sometimes in a victimhood. And it's a tricky balance here. I once had a, a family I was working with where a school bus had pulled in front of their car and, and they were in a terrible accident. And the legal situation was that the more they could kind of play up the victimhood, the more the harm that had been done to them and kind of the idea that it was long-term harm, of course, the bigger the settlement was going to be. But from a mental health standpoint, what you want to do is to kind of do something that's different, right? Kind of being able to say, there is kind of healing possible here. Here's the path to that healing. Here's how we reduce the trauma. Here's how we ensure that it isn't kind of long-term. And so that, I think, is an analogy to some of the other things that are going on in the world around us, where there's this trade-off between maximizing our conversation about victimhood, like in the Me Too movement or whatever it might be, in order to kind of push for real social change that needs to happen. But then that can kind of put us in a position where we're wary of conversations about healing, growth, resilience, ownership, power that we own, etc., because those two things are in a dynamic tension with each other. As you and I navigate this minefield, I guess we talk about things we take so personally, our emotions are ramped up. And I think often when we are in the red zone, we tend to become reductive. Absolutely. You know, so that's one of the things that also is missing in the online conversation, this idea of cutting people off because they are toxic, ignores the fact that shunning can be incredibly cruel and harmful. You know, there was a painful story that crossed my desk last week about a 13-year-old Italian girl whose friends they said it was a joke, cut her out of a group chat, and she killed herself. And, you know, 13-year-olds, that's an extreme reaction. It's an extremely anguishing story. But, you know, at some level, 13-year-olds who lack the ability to anticipate the future, everything feels here and now, they lack practice in modulating their own emotions, etc. But they kind of, you know, they, they react in extreme ways to things that touch all of us. Shunning and exclusion in our ancestral environment were a death sentence quite literally. And so we are wired to have intense responses and reactions to that happening. And in fact, being excluded or shunned actually utilizes some of the same pain pathways in our brain that physical pain does. And in at least some sensitive people, it increases sensitivity to physical pain. I did a speech recently talking about tribalism, the pros and cons, right? The the best and sometimes the worst of tribes. We do know that when it comes to consequences, tribes can use certain pressures to shore up bad behavior, to call out toxic behavior. And then when you've got somebody who's just such a bad agent doing so much damage, you got to open the door and say, don't let it hit you <laughs> on the way out. You know, I think that's valid and often necessary. But then we also see these sort of uh, purity tests, this demand to toe the line to lockstep behind a certain position, even a dogmatic position. And if you don't, you're out, you're the enemy, and we will mob up on and destroy your reputation. I think there's some interesting questions to be had about whether that is kind of part and parcel of a bunch of pro-social behaviors and positive impacts of tribalism, right? The ways that tribes develop social norms and mores and sets of expectations that allow people to live in harmony with each other, that allow people to take care of each other. So it may be the black lining on a silver cloud. I'm not sure. 
there's probably a, a lot of research waiting to be done, especially as we seem to be reconfiguring it and then crystallizing into a different set of tribes than the ones that were most familiar when we were growing up. Some years ago, I worked on a project called the Wisdom Commons, and it was a website that was structured around a hundred different virtues that are valued across both secular and religious wisdom traditions. And one of the most strong thoughts I came out of that project with was that all virtues are a balance between two vices, <laughs> that, that kind of if you take any virtue and you take it to an extreme, it becomes a vice. And that has been a part of my sense of the world ever since. So yes, I, I think that your description of this as the difference between reaction and overreaction, how does kind of calling people toxic, when does that become toxic in and of itself? I think it's about trying to kind of figure out when we are overreacting. And the overreaction is not self-care. It's perhaps even self-harmful, whereas the ability to kind of set healthy, appropriate boundaries to kind of have pro-social norms and expectations within a group to be able to kind of reduce the status of people who challenge or damage that sense of social capital. That's the whole bundle there. That's what we're trying to figure out, trying to navigate. So you can bill me if you want, but I always want to give people tools. All right, we're highlighting the problem here, but I mean, would you say there is a system, a series of bullet points that people might be able to use to determine whether or not they are reacting or overreacting when they have a fight, they're made uncomfortable, they encounter somebody who's being genuinely awful? I don't know. Do you have a, a, some advice as to how to determine what is and isn't quote unquote toxic? Well, I mean, I think it would be a series of questions perhaps to ask yourself or perhaps to have someone else ask you that have to do with that exploration I mentioned earlier. Am I able to kind of develop some internal or kind of to see that I can protect myself without having to shun this person? Am I able to kind of have a, a conversation with them? Can I come from a place of compassion and hope that says maybe there's the possibility of change here or mutual understanding? And then if I ask myself, have I actually gone through this process or not? Then I think that's one of the sets of questions. I think the other thing would be to kind of give ourselves an honest conversation with ourselves or honest recognition of the fact that pretty much all, all relationships are mixed, right? And that there's pros and cons. And that oftentimes, if we could figure out how to navigate past and through and around the, the cons, we are able to get some of the goodies. And then I think also being able to kind of carry within us the recognition that our self-care can become cruelty or bullying, and that, in fact, it can become us rather than actually becoming healthier. It actually can become a part of us retrenching or digging in. You know, it's funny. I've been doing kind of an experiment in my own life, not to drag this call on, but since we're talking, I um, found myself for a while online when somebody would say something that rankled me, you know, grazed against my nerves, my snark mechanism kicked in and I would be like, I would just immediately say something that was by design escalatory. And lately, even with the bad agents, I have been trying more to soften that, ask a question perhaps clarify where I am without the snark. And I have noticed that it has changed the responses that come back. And in many mm -hmm. cases, whoever my interlocutor is, whether I know them or not, whether I can see their face or just an avatar or not, whether they're an anonymous other on the other side of the world or not, the temperature of our exchange actually became better 
we didn't dehumanize each other. And I found that that started with me. I mean, that that's what I guess what I was talking about earlier is that kind of recognizing the power that we do have to change things and, and that we elicit from other people. You know, I'm congenitally anxious. And when people say things that seem wrong to me, when they don't make sense, I tend to kind of, my anxiety kind of guides me to go into an oppositional mode about that. I got to correct it. I got to challenge it. I can't stand to have that misperception out in the world. And yet what I find is that even in my writing, I find myself increasingly trying to say, let's not approach this from an oppositional perspective. Instead of saying, here's what the right wing is doing wrong, or you know, I recently wrote an article about men and abortion, and I, my first title was what the left gets wrong about men and abortion. And then I changed it to men are more than allies in the abortion fight, right? So trying to kind of shift from something that's going to trigger the other person because of my oppositional stance to something that maybe it feels a little bit less satisfying when I'm revved up, right? But it's something that might be possible for the other person to go, huh, that might make sense. They don't or it feel. allows them to soften so they can say something that I might be able to go, huh, that kind of makes sense. I appreciate your time and, and talking me through this. Uh, Dr. Tarico and I have been friends for a long time, and, and I, you know, I trust you. I, I, I like your perspective. I think, it's, um, I think it refreshingly focuses on humanity and some of the missed opportunities that we have to share humanity. And for that, I'm very thankful. And I appreciate you, you know, spending a few minutes chatting with me about toxicity. You are much appreciated. Well, I'm glad to do it. And I'm honored to be a part of the conversation with you. And I think it's not, it, this is not an either or conversation, right? It's not either we should cut off people who are harmful to us, or we should stay engaged with them wherever possible. I think it's one of those yes and conversations. It's about who, how, when, where, what, why. I like so thanks it. Thanks again for having a conversation about it. I like it. Dr. Tarico. great talking to you. You too. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring The Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. 
Pecan. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.